0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Dark After Dark number 31 discussions with Emil Kalinowski. I think I got that right. Um, and um, Emil is the co host of Making Sense, Eurodollar University, with the one and only Jeff Schneider. Uh, he um, has got a background uh, in precious metals, so we will talk about that a bit, and is obviously very well known in the kind of FinTwit and YouTube financial communities. So as always, uh, please do your own research. If you get any trading ideas from this conversation, it's not investment advice. Emil, welcome. How are you doing?
1: Dr. Dark, I am so thrilled to be on and talking to you right now. I can't believe it. Uh, whenever I introduce Jeff, I always say, oh, Jeff Snyder, he's the head of global research for Alhambra investments. But that's just the, the face he wears during the day. At night, what he really does, he's the the sleuth of the shadows, it, you know, that's sort of like alter ego, nighttime uh, persona. And then here I am on with a real life villain, Dr. Dark, right? Dr. Manhattan, Dr. Nefario. So I'm thrilled and I just wanna know how I should refer to you as Dr. Dr. Dark.
0: Well, anyth- or Chris, or anything you want. You know, you know what's funny is my initials are CJD, which for any British people listening, they will chuckle because that's mad cow disease. So (laughs) Yakov disease. So in effect, I always like to say I didn't do so well in the naming stakes, Um, but um, although I I think Dr. Duck's a pretty cool name, so. And hey, I I, I even got a PhD. I didn't even buy it off the internet, so, you know.
1: Um, (laughs) I am going to buy it off the internet. I'll just be upfront with the audience right now.
0: (laughs) I can grant you one from Dark University.
1: Easy. I, okay. I'm going to uh, look through the catalog and find something slightly demeaning and uh, comical. And then I will ask you to uh, grant it to
0: me. All right. Very good. Like economics,
1: a doctorate in economics would be perfect.
0: Well, I guess some would say that's a bit of a um, anachronism, but anyways. um, All right. So let's start with, you know, there's 2020 has basically been this insane year <laughs> and every meme in the world has been kind of um, brought out to describe it. And how, how are you, how are you thinking about kind of markets at the moment? Like, is, is, have you, has your view changed over the last few months? Like, you know, we tend to talk about all sorts of different asset classes here. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, when you look at the craziness, what, what really goes through your mind? That it's about time. That this was expected, and it was necessary,
1: and it was something that we were all heading for 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 years. And uh, what I'm speaking of here is the Neil Howe and William Strauss fourth turning. If people haven't read that, then I'm speaking of the George Martin's Game of Thrones Winter. Or if anyone's a, a science fiction fan, then I'm talking about Asimov's Harry Seldon Crisis or a Kipling. Kipling fan, if anyone's read the return of the the gods of the copybook headings, our eras don't last forever. They have expiration dates. And a lot of people have spent time trying to figure out what brings those eras to an end. And uh, there's been good work done that we had reached the end of our era, the post-World War II order. And we had just been keeping it on life support ever since 2008 and it was getting harder and harder and harder. And whether or not in my bingo card, I had uh, the plague, Uh, you know, no, I didn't, but I had disorder, danger, mayhem, deflation, and it was on our horizon and it had to happen so that we could uh, bring an end to the era that we're living in that no longer, that doesn't apply to so many people. And let me make it more specific it's a, a social contract between government, business, the wealthy, regular households. And that's been in place, I would say, since the end of the world uh, war. And then it's been changed a little bit. We had a globalization, the post-Cold War globalization. Different, different contracts, but they've all been disintegrating over the last 13 years. And uh, we are trying to enter that new era and this crisis is uh, hastening it. So I'm not surprised and I wouldn't expect this to be the worst of it. I would
0: expect it to continue to escalate. Right. And what's, uh, so I've mentioned Neil Howell's book several times, Force Turning. So hopefully, I mean, I, I know a bunch of listeners have read it, but I think what's, I mean, again, he wasn't trying to predict, right, exactly what would happen when, but he even did say something like a pandemic could hit around 2020. It wasn't like pr- projecting it precisely. Um, but it is a kind of, um, out of all the things you mentioned, that's one I'm most familiar with. And um, I'm not a Game of Thrones guy. Um, and yeah, it, it is. But I've always believed in, you know, cycles. and you know, And, and whether it's, you know, there's a super long-term cycle on, the earth on just temperature, right? And then you've got mini cycles on top of the cycles, and this is what climate people like to debate about. And, um, and it, to your point, it just feels like we're, end of, we're, we're at the end of what, what's been kind of an in, interesting innings. Um, but I mean, I mean, an interesting related question then is, so some people would say we've been in a depression since 2008 because inflation's measured wrongly and therefore real GDP has actually been negative. Because inflation's pro- most inflation that people see, like food inflation, has has probably been a, a little higher than. that. I mean, if you look at something like a shadow stats, um, you know, it'd say the inflation rates four or five percent. Um, so I'm interested in to diving into that a bit because you know it, it's clear there have also been some gigantic deflationary um, forces as well, whether it be demographics and technology and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, so are, are you of av- do you think we 've been in a depression since oh eight and it 's just kind of massaging of the statistics that makes it look like we 've been growing i have
1: I do believe that we 've been in a depression since two thousand and eight and I refer to it as the silent depression, but i don 't believe it 's been because of any massage statist- statistics and For any interested listeners, I wrote an article about it and I try to make it fun. I involved the John Bluto Blutarsky from the Animal House. And uh, I made fun of some of the differences between our two countries, the United States and the United Kingdom, and uh, how we are a common people separated by a common language. And uh, I posted it at the CFA Society blog uh, in February, and it's called uh, The Silent Depression, if anyone wanted to read it. And the point is that we have been in a depression, because what is a depression? A depression is not the upfront contraction. See, we've gotten used to recessions after the Second World War ended, and they've all been cyclical. And what is a recession? Well, we measure it by the downdraft, that contraction, the upfront contraction, and then how long it it takes us to get back to trend, because we always made it back to trend. It was a V-shaped recovery. And so that's what a recession is. Some people define it as two consecutive negative quarters, but it doesn't have to be. We've seen examples where that's not the case. But it's just the upfront contraction. What is a depression? Because we haven't seen one for four generations, on a worldwide scale. There was a depression throughout Latin America and Africa in the 1980s. But a world on a worldwide scale, we haven't seen one since the Great Depression. And so we forgot what they were. And what are Great Depressions? Not the upfront contraction, but the lack of recovery, the inability to ever get back to trend. If you look back at the the Great Depression, it wasn't an unrelenting contraction year after year. No, it was a contraction and then reflations, but never strong enough to ever get back to the trend that existed beforehand. Same thing. If you look at the Long Depression from 1873 to 1896, it was an upfront contraction and then years of just flatline growth. And if you look at the the average GDP per capita, the real GDP per capita, and you look at all the countries that have reported their data uh, since the Second World War, and you can even get a greater sample if you just started 1950 and if you look at their real gdp per capita growth rates from 1945 to 19 or 1950 all the way until 2007 you'd get a certain number i'm i'm going to say it's 2%ish or so ever since then the majority of the global economy and a plurality of countries have been import- reporting real gdp per capita growth rates that are half of what we experienced for 50 to 60 years before then. And by the time we got to the end of 2019, the median difference, right? Because let's say you're for, that's 10, 13 years since 2007, where you're compounding at half the rate that two to three generations got used to and expected. And so the median off trend, the amount that you're off trend turned out to be ten thousand dollars the median average per capita in 2019 was ten thousand dollars short of where it should have been had we remained on our poor post-world war ii trend and that is a lack of recovery that is a depression and i call it the silent depression because you don't hear about it in the media you don't hear about it from our monetary technocrats
0: yeah no that's uh, that's a I really like the, well, sorry, it's a depressing time thing to think about, but the, the term silent depression is, I think, a really nice uh, encapsulation of it all. Um, and and of course, when historians look back, um, with all the benefits of hindsight as well, I'm sure it will get talked about a lot more. Um, so what do you think the end game is to this kind of, I mean, there isn't an end game. I don't mean like, you know, the world's going to end, or maybe that is, but like... <laughs> um, you know, where does this logically lead into, in, into kind of like what would be the next chapter? Um, or maybe, you know, because, you know, the, the book of human beings is going to carry on. Um, Ooh. and I'm very optimistic in the long run in that human beings are resourceful and smart and ultimately will work stuff out. Um, but, but where do you actually see this going in the next few years or next decade?
1: Dr. Dark, will you forgive me if I just step back and just give another searing example for sure, people that may be dismissing the, uh, the depression claim that I'm making? You go for it. Absolutely. Is that okay? You don't mind? Totally. Before I answer that question, I, you know what I encourage people to do? Go to the World Bank uh, website, pull up birth rate per 1,000 people, and take a look at the trends of Any number of countries, pick the United States, United Kingdom, and what you'll notice, that since about the 1990s or 2000s, the birth rates were increasing, they were rising. And what happened, 2007, 2008 hit, they inflected and they've been down ever since. That is a real world, real life, social consequence. And the losses that we have suffered Because of this depression, the lives that that have never come to pass because of this depression. So that's, you know, sometimes we're stuck talking about economics and, you know, how does that affect real people? There's just an example of the real terrible consequences that we have suffered. You can see that in countries all around the world. Is it a coincidence that women all around the world just started saying, yeah, no, that's it. I'm going to pick 2008. No, I don't. I claim it that it's not. But to your point, I'm in. A, I'm in agreement with you. I'm a very optimistic about the future. Humanity will pr- pull through, and the end game is that we will create a new social contract, and that we will enter a new golden age—one where we think anything is possible. That we'll be able to achieve and build things that now, you know, seem out of mind. And this is what happens at the end. Of an era as we enter a new one why because we've we put in a floor we put in a new social contract a new set of rules that businesses private enterprise banks understand these are the new rules we're playing by now i understand now i can invest in the future and i believe that uh, there's so much pent-up uh investment so much pent-up ingenuity that will be unleashed i've listened to a lot of your podcasts you have a lot of guests on that are fascinating entrepreneurs and inventors and uh, there's going to be so much more of them so there's a real golden age on the other end of this depression
0: Is there? i mean so i mean anyone listening that's heard a few of these things will know i completely agree with that but to you know the, the slight monkey wrench is that because capitalism is in effect dead, um, even in America, where saying that in the, if you said that in the 1980s, you would have been put in a mental asylum, right? Um, but it is pretty much dead now. Um, zombie companies, everyone getting bailed out. It, you know, the incumbents who are not efficient often get bailed out. And it means it's really it's harder for entrepreneurs to actually break through you know, the the stranglehold, just people like Facebook, Google, Amazon have, I mean, if you're you're trying to be an online retailer now, good luck. uh, If Amazon's already launched in in the country you're in. Um, So does that need to be dismantled before we can get to that kind of golden time? I imagine that it will be. That's, it's a paradigm shift. It's a,
1: we are going to enter a new, a new world order that's completely unrecognizable the one that exists now, and that's what these phase transitions are all about. And I imagine that uh, Google and the monopolies will be dismantled or made to look different uh, in the United States. When did the first great wave of antitrust legislation take place? Towards the end of the Long Depression, because people were sick of it, because it didn't make sense, and things needed to be broken apart. And I'm. Capitalism is struggling right now, but once it is set free, I'm sure that it will perform well enough. I'm sure it won't be the classic capitalism that we're used to, much like after the uh, Great Depression. There was a different kind of capitalism that was implemented. I'm sure that the same thing will happen again. Um, But one thing that we shouldn't expect is to extrapolate linearly from today's era the things that we see today, that they'll just be slightly different. I expect there to to be a rending and a tearing up of so many of the things that we've gotten used to. And I think, I believe, that's why we don't see the economic growth that we need. Because companies, private enterprise, banks, they know the rules are going to change. So why would you step out? Why would you invest into a future whose rules you don't Know yet, you don't know how they're going to look. It's better just to take everything this era for everything it's worth. Just why invest in new plant property equipment when you can just invest in your own stock and get rich that way? Right? I think it makes complete sense these buyback shares, uh, share buybacks. So it's terrible, I don't support it. But if you know that everything's going to be torn up here, why invest in the future?
0: Right. No, I, I, and, and I've always said on, on buybacks, which was very much a theme of nineteen. People got very annoyed about buybacks, but my point was always, well, look, if Apple, which prints money, wants to buy back shares, who cares? That's fine. It's it was the giant borrowing that happened to fund a bunch of the buybacks, which um, wasn't perhaps so 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 cool. But um, but I agree. Like, if you're an executive there and you think you've got five, ten years left, well, why not? Um, so I guess. I, I like the point about antitrust in the, in effect, the late thirties. Of course, then what happened was there was a war and a very big war from 1940 to 45. And so if you look back in history, often, uh, you know, I would argue that, you know, when the the pound became unseated as the reserve currency, you know, it was a, it was a a, a multi-year process with World War One, World War Two, like kind of sandwiched around that. Right. Um, so often there's something that, catalyzes massive change. Um, do you think COVID was enough to be that catalyst? Or, because I'm really hoping we're not going to have a world war, that would be awful. Um, uh. But of course, there's many types of war these days. It doesn't just have to be a kinetic war with bombs. Um, but was COVID enough to change things, or not? Because we see the riots in US, I and mean, this is going to be an absolute shit show of an election, by the looks, in terms of whatever happens, half of America is going to be incredibly annoyed. Um, or roughly half, um, or, or do we need something, an even bigger shock? Um, because, you know, some people already think, well, the stock market's up, it's at all-time highs, things are back to normal.
1: Yeah, that's right. I'm triple levered uh, Belarusian utilities myself. I don't, I don't have a care in the world now. Yeah, I'm all in. Stock markets are up. Everything's great. And I agree with you. No, COVID is not enough. I thought it might have been. I was hopeful. I was hopeful. And the way we'll know it'll be enough is that whatever it is will unify us. And that's the crisis that we're looking for. It's the crucible through which we will exit as a unified nation. And I'm not referring just to the United States, all the countries, so many countries in South America and in Europe and North America have populists and radical parties coming to the front. Why? because they're unhappy with the way things are going with the establishment. And so what we need is something that will unify us. And unfortunately, COVID seems to have not been enough. But no, we don't need a world war. Um, the silent depression did not end with a war. It ended with, uh, with a surge of new money creation. And uh, at least in the United States, it ended with a new, a political, a final political decision a final political election as to which direction the economy was gonna go. So it's just, it's a crisis moment, whether it's political or global, something that unifies the country and informs them, this is the direction we're heading. We're all rowing in the same direction because right now everyone's rowing in a different direction. Uh, And so, you know, there's no cohesiveness. That's what's missing
0: right uh, yeah i like that another thing kind of related is i have had a theory for a long time that i mean if you exclude some of the obvious countries like china and other um, places that don't have a democracy most democracies have terms for politicians between 3 to 5 years and i know like you know like the house in the us is every 2 years but but the presidential term is 4 years that's the cycle right in the uk it's 5 years and and so on um And I've always thought, I've always been stuck in a bit of a dichotomy because three to five years, let's just call it four years as an average, is not enough for anyone to plan in the long term. Um, And you know, there are a lot of decisions, you know, for example, the state of pensions across the world needs long term thinking. But politicians are always, always thinking about winning the next election. now, of course, um, but, but then having said that, I don't think in a world where we had, say, 10 years, uh, you know, you, you're a US president for, say, 10 years is, is perhaps a good world either. Um, you know, it's far too long, you could argue. Um, I, I just wonder if there's a, you know, have you, have you thought about this type of stuff and contrasting it with, you know, say so in China, in effect, it's every 10 years, right? Um, but really, they're, they're thinking in the 30 to 40 year time frame. um which I think has been very beneficial for them and one can agree or disagree with what they do. Um, But they have have clearly taken a, um, yeah, a a different approach. And so, so I don't know, does that make any sense or what do you think? Of
1: course it does. You're Dr. Dark. Of course it makes sense. I say lots Uh, of rubbish as well. No, (laughs) no, no, no. I don't believe, I've listened to your shows. That's not true. And I love the episode you did on civilization, the game, and making the analogies to present day. I love that. You should do another one of those.
0: Oh, you know what? Um, it's so funny. That's the least popular one I've ever done. But I thought it was really cool. But I, it was oh, a bit niche. Um, it was a bit niche. But anyway. So, I also did it while I walking right, up a hill right, and I was like heavily breathing for half of it. But never mind.
1: <laughs> you, you were making uh, economics erogenous again. Heavy breathing, bringing in gaming, it was hot, I loved it. But you're right, I, all, the, all the shows that I like to watch, all the movies, they are niche, niche. And uh, so you're right, yeah, don't listen to me actually, that would be bad for, for your ratings, but uh, I love that show. But here, to your point, is three to five years enough time? Yes, it is, if everyone's rowing in the same direction. Or, here's another analogy, when you're forging something, it's gonna be impossible when it's cool, right? The sword that you're forging, when the metal is cold, you're just gonna crack it, you're gonna shatter it. When can you forge something? When it is a white white, hot crisis, that's when you can forge things. That's what we saw in previous crises. When everyone realizes that they are facing something existential and that their own personal, I don't know, Uh, political ends may need to be uh, put off to the side because everyone needs to get through a crisis together. And then there's a leader, a prophet, uh, someone, a great champion, uh, a martyr that comes to the front and offers some sort of guidance, wisdom, purpose, decision. And that starts to overwhelm the legal restrictions that were in place, the the resistance of entrenched interests in that crisis and so in three to five years you can do a lot if there's a crisis taking place but and so i think politicians uh or statesmen states women they should be preparing for that moment that moment when the whole country can and will follow a leader and change the direction of the country so it's it's just a moment of it's just a matter of finding the right set of circumstances, which I believe are on their way. Uh, or, in the words of uh, Grant Williams, this is something that I've always enjoyed. Is uh, a few years ago he said that he believes that the years ahead of us there will be more books written about the years ahead of us than any other period since World War II. So, I think that's true.
0: Yeah, no, I, yeah, that's an, I like that one too so that seems to have got us to the kind of well there's this thing called the u.s election coming up and i'm not american i can't vote in it and if i was in america and could vote i can um, (laughs) okay let's not okay my my podcast with fed up biz owner is all about that one when he kind of two months ago said the next two months all you're ever going to hear about is mail-in voting and he absolutely nailed that one um although it was hasn't been an easy thing to benefit from from a trading standpoint but um anyways um the i'm going to be cynical and say i don't believe either of the candidates. i mean i genuinely don't know who i'd vote for if i was in us Genuinely, genuinely do not know um i can see interesting points on both sides it's just it's just so maddening because everything gets just so partisan and to your point people are not rowing the same way And this doesn't feel like, I mean, I I could, whether you love or hate Obama, at least he was a figure that like could, I think, you know, inspire people and, um, but you know, he can't be president. Um, It just seems there's two bad candidates. And are are we in effect saying, well, we're going to have to wait to 2024 to get some real political change? Because the shenanigans are not going to change, I don't think, whoever wins um, in, in three months time.
1: Yes. Sadly, I'm disappointed by the candidates as well, but the circumstances may force them to behave in a certain way. So it's, there's no hope lost yet. Uh, and if you look back through time, a lot of the, the great leaders that came to the fore, they were weird and odd and they were, they had very bad reputations and people didn't like them and people thought they were losers. Uh, who? Abraham Lincoln, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Churchill. They they were they had lots of warts, and people had lots of doubts. But their circumstances forced them to implement emergency measures. So admittedly, I don't think highly of either candidate or either running mate, but I am still holding out hope that uh, whoever wins if the circumstances force them they'll be able to respond so it's it's not the end of the world though yes disappointing right what do you think of that do you think they could change
0: i i i I get very worried and if there was i mean covid is we were lucky that it wasn't more deadly right if it was 10 times more deadly and you didn't have hundreds of thousands of people dying in us but millions i mean that suddenly is you know one in a hundred people right <laughs> then um I, I you know i think the way just trump has dealt with everything has been just horrendously awful um but he uh-huh. wasn't the only world leader to screw things up right uh, interestingly it's a lot of the more authoritarian ones that screwed it up the most um uh-huh. and um so i don't have much confidence <laughs> if there's a really genuine so sort if of like a yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, before COVID, I guess, you know, nine eleven was obviously a moment, right. Um, you know, very, very much so uh, you know, that, that did actually bring us together for perhaps a, a short period of time and quite a lot of um, change started to happen. Um, although it was sort of like change where the U S would weaponize the dollar as much as possible. And which is their biggest weapon. I mean, it's not their atomic bombs or the army or whatever, it's the dollar. Um how, Dr. Dark how fami-
1: how familiar are you with the uh, the appeal of Churchill when he came to power because I know when in the United States when Roosevelt came to power he was uh, just very poorly thought of weakling silver spoon in his mouth how could he possibly relate to the masses and he he changed everything he uh implemented crazy ideas, crazy programs, uh, radical ones. And he demanded that other uh, branches of government uh, respond to him and follow him. He threatened the Supreme Court to dilute it by appointing more Supreme Court justices. So he was a complete radical, even though going in, weakling silver spoon in his mouth. How about in your country, with Churchill, when he went in, was everyone thrilled, or were they thinking well i don 't have a lot of confidence here
0: Well, he was well known right Remember he you know, he was i think foreign Sec- well, secretary of state or foreign secretary before, and he 'd been in politics a long time, so he wasn 't like a kind of you know an unknown um, but I, I mean i 'm not an expert in this, but from my understanding is I think it 's pretty clear that when the shit hit the fan, you know that that 's when yeah, that's when everyone got behind him, and, and he stepped up um, and was a um an inspiration all of a sudden, not just in the u k but but I'd, I'd argue across europe and um, um so but yeah, as i say i'm not i haven't studied that in depth, so um, of course he then lost the election um, right after the war uh-huh. um, and then he won again a few years later. this is kind of very interesting the The public kicked him out straight after the war. They're like, oh, we need someone probably more left wing to rebuild this for a bit. And then, then they got kicked out in Churchill One again. So it's kind of very interesting. Because people
1: call forward the prophet, the hero, the martyr. And then once the crisis is over, you know, we're fickle. And we say, all right, well, it's time to move on to somebody else. Of course, the danger is, though, that we could call forward a maniac, a wild dictator, and we've seen examples of that around the world of countries who were on their knees and looked to a man with a plan. And of course, that plan was insane. But so that's, that's the worry. Thankfully, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, there are institutions that help dampen that kind of volatility, the, the possibility of that. But uh, that's the risk, is when we come to this moment, this crucible that we could call forward uh, a maniac. Now, we do need a radical. We do need a radical, but uh, hopefully it won't be a maniac.
0: Right. I also wonder, like, if you think about, if you think back to, say, Roosevelt and how people were vetted back then versus now, right? I mean, now, yeah, I've always believed that there will be a huge business of basically scrubbing the internet of your own data that you don't, you know, stuff you said when you were 16 or whatever. Um, And and it sort of hasn't really <laughs> happened yet. but. Um, or,
1: or in my case my my mid 40s right, right oh, no,
0: <laughs> right um but but now it seems especially actually it's not just in the us this is a phenomenon all over the place people are politicians are people who have grown up wanting to be a politician um and, and there's obviously exceptions like trump but i mean um but like they've never actually worked in a real job. They've certainly not started a business. They've never been entrepreneur. They've, uh, you know, and it it seems to me to kind of, well, you would think the natural tendency would be to sort of to, to everyone to like mean revert and kind of, this is where Europe's gone. They've kind of pretty much center, slightly left of center, right of center, whatever. That's kind of where most winning parties kind of end up in most of the larger countries. Um, But, um, and and maybe biden is 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 like that um you know in terms of being a slightly left of center type of guy um and it's, i think it's very hard to place trump on where he is on the spectrum so uh, on, uh-huh. you know, um i mean it, it, i think it, you know just saying he's super right is not true um and um so is the thing that brings them together in effect whatever you want to call it but mmt i mean it seems to be no one seems to care about well, maybe right now the GOP care a bit about the deficit, but it's probably not really that, um, it, it, you know, they, they, they care more about the election and they don't want to pass anything that might harm their chances of winning that, um, is MMT that thing? And and also I think if, if, if it, if in effect, Stephanie Kelton is chair of the fed and, and this happens with a Congress backing it, it's probably going to feel really good for two or three years. Um,
1: that's right. Well, I don't, I don't know what the solution is. I'm just looking for radical ideas and I'm, I know they're going to be unpleasant and I'm not going to support many of them. Uh, but that's what we need is something completely different. MMT qualifies uh, universal basic income qualifies. Uh, what other ideas might there be? Helicopter money, getting money to the people or Russell Napier's idea of the, the politicians commandeering banks, turning them into right. public yeah. utilities. That's and what I was going to say.
0: Commanding like, them. Because Richard Werner has covered that a lot as well, right? So the whole, um, in effect, Fed, Fed, Fed coin, whatever you want to call it, have a digital dollar. You basically take over the banking sector and we all have a Fed account. I actually really do genuinely believe that's where things are going. So, um that's what we should be looking forward to not i mean as
1: as something that will take place whether or not that's good or not i don't know but those are the sort of policy proposals that we need these days and not the federal reserve coming out and saying we're going to lower interest rates from 0.5 to 0.25 there you go guys go out there go invest we've just given you free money all in face first no pants all right we've done our job call us when you know when they're handing out nobel prizes that garbage is over and it has been for 13 years but they they're still going out there and and making policy proposals like we're going to raise interest rates or lower interest rates by a quarter of a percent we're not going to step in when inflation rises even though we haven't been able to get inflation to where we want it to be so it's just that's it's rearranging the the deck chairs
0: on a titanic That's already sunk, right? So you know what the most interesting idea I've heard in the last month, and it's not my idea, and I'll give full credit to where I heard it, which was on Tales from the Crypt, so Marty Bent's podcast, uh, and he had Luke Roman on. um, Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I, I uh, actually I've tended to disagree a lot with stuff Luke said, but I think he's. Mm -hmm. But I also really vehemently agree with some of the stuff he says too. I think he's a super smart guy. But Mm -hmm. Marty brought up this idea of if if you really want to, and I'd never considered this. And I said it to my wife and she was kind of like, well, what does that even mean? It's like, he, his point was like, well, if if you think I'm paraphrasing a, a quite a lot here, but if you think of it, if if we go and find some alien um, um, race, right. That are way ahead of us. So, you know, they, they, they probably have already harnessed they're like a tier one or two, I think, um, civilization they've already harnessed the power of their own sun they can travel from galaxy to galaxy it's pretty likely that their currency will so the reserve currency that they use will probably be energy not Hmm. some concept of a dollar or whatever Um, or time maybe right well actually i think that's where you go after energy um it's even more advanced ultimately time is like the the ultimate um uh, currency if you can Bend space time, which means you need more energy by the way. So it kind of does have this mm. logical progression, mm. which, and, you know, unless, I mean, I'm 99.99999% certain there are, you know, absolutely there's probably an infinite number of other um, civilizations across the universe. It's just, I mean, the latest- One of them visited us this year. Well, there we go. Right? So, and, or was it
1: last year that that, uh, that, uh, that asteroid came through?
0: Right, and well, right, so that could be something, and we have no way of even telling, right? I mean, and so you know, they, they, but the point is, is I'm not trying to make this too esoteric, but what's super interesting is, is if you, because if there isn't another fiat currency that can take over from the dollar. Um, and I know you could have baskets of stuff, uh, like the kind of um, special drawing rights stuff, SDR type stuff, but a real shift in thinking um, and I was just thinking about, you know, what would even a, even a civilization like three or 400 years ahead of us, um, I'm pretty certain energy would be the currency. Um, and which is what, and of course this came up with Marty, because of course, you know, this is very interesting for say Bitcoin or gold, because they're both storing energy in effect. Um, but putting that aside in terms of, I'm not trying to turn this into like a Bitcoin or gold thing. Um, it's, you know. How do you react to something like that? I mean, it's, it's definitely a big idea and it's been kind of tickling my brain for the last couple of weeks since I heard it.
1: Well, the, uh, I think we need something new, something different. And the, uh, the asteroid I was referring to is the Aua Muamua yeah. asteroid. Oh, Aua yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's fascinating. I love it. I can't believe it. We're all excited about 2020, all the things that happened. And oh, by the way, aliens visited. Unbelievable. There's serious people, serious, accomplished, credible people saying this was bizarre and highly unusual. I love it. Uh, We need something different, some sort of different money. And whether it's energy-based, time-based, or if we're still a little bit too monkey-like and we haven't advanced that far along the path, maybe some sort of global reserve currency that is... Not national in nature, much like the bancor was proposed in the uh, 1940s, or the SDR when it was invented in the oh, when was it invented? The 1960s, I believe. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. So these sort of outside um, currencies that could settle international trade imbalances—that's plausible. And uh, you know what? I've I've done a little bit of research on globalization, and globalization is not a inevitable trend or a moral linear trend. It's a cycle. It's an economic cycle, one that lasts, could last a couple of decades, but it comes and goes. And based on the work of uh, Michael Pettis in his 2000 book, uh, The Volatility Machine, he lists uh, six globalizations that have taken place since 1800. And this one would have been the seventh one. And what brings them all about and ends them all is the expansion and contraction of global liquidity from the advanced economy money center so in the back in the day london paris today tokyo new york frankfurt britain london Uh, what happens is money expands it goes around the world it knits the world together then something happens people realize that that country they were investing in wasn't real or the assets they were investing in are implausibly expensive or valuable. And what happens is the money is called back home to the advanced economy money centers, and it lays waste, economic, social devastation to the globe. And the economy suffers for years because of it. But what we see very often, doesn't happen every time, but we see is that th- these moments are then associated w- with the birth or death of the monetary order. So whether or not it's an energy coin, a time coin, or a gold, Bitcoin, international SDR, I think there's a very good chance that if we suffer another kind of a shock that'll uh, bring about some sort of crisis, that, uh, that we will enter the new era, the new age, with a wholly new kind of monetary order. As to what it is, whew, that is what the smartest, most intelligent minds in the world should be working on right now. I'm not one of those. I spent 13 years going to Arizona State University, the School of Tequila, Bikinis, and Sun. So I'm not one of those.
0: Um. Come on. ASU is, uh, it's, it's like the biggest university. Is that true in the U S it's students? one of the bigger
1: ones. It's, it's one it's, of the bigger it's, ones. It's, it's gigantic.
0: Uh, I mean, I'm used to, you know, in the UK, you're used to like multiple thousands of people in university, but not like many tens of thousands. So, um,
1: it's yeah. very similar to Oxford where you went just with more tequila, more bikinis, more sun, much <laughs> less education.
0: Oxford had more rain. That's for sure. So, so, <laughs> so um, Okay, so let's, uh, there's some, lots of interesting ways this could go, right? But w- w- one thought I've been thinking was, you mentioned, obviously, globalization. And again, that's another thing that goes in uh, waves or cycles, whatever you want to call it. And the, I would say the consensus view is that, well, wait a minute, if we are uh, uh, undoing globalization, and so we're getting more nationalistic, and basically bringing back um, production to not just America, but to the UK, to wherever. Um but most people say, well, that's going to be very inflationary because it's going to be, um, you know, because they were being, these widgets were being built in whatever country was cheapest. Um, but I kind of always had a little bit of an issue with that because um, I kind of thought, well, wait a minute, like, sure, if, 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 if my T-shirt is, my white T-shirt can be made cheapest in Cambodia, let's just say, for the sake of argument, um, with manpower, but wait a minute, And sure, manpower obviously costs less there than say the US. But if I'm bringing that back home, and it doesn't have to be a t-shirt, it could be anything. I'm gonna, to your point earlier, like I'm gonna build and invest in amazing machines and technology to Mm -hmm. do this without needing any people. And actually, why can't I make this cheaper? Uh, Because this is maybe how we get into that kind of golden age of people actually investing in capex and technology um, and, you know, and seeing the, the kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. And so I know it's, this is not a consensus view in any way, but I think there's huge opportunities uh, and that will unleash the entrepreneurs, um, which is, I think, generally what you want in a vibrant economy. Um, you know, have you thought about the kind of globalization and deflation inflation angle, I guess is the question.
1: Yes. And I love what you said there, because what we could see is that yes, prices would rise, because we're exiting the era of where we favored efficiency and profits and we're entering one which favors resiliency great example all of the rare earths are mined in china and back when globalization was taking place there was no problem because we we're all on the same team we're all on the human team and why should i invest in rare earth mines in the united states or in australia it's very environmentally damaging. I could just buy it for cheaper from China and they'll be happy to send it to me. They'll be happy to sell it to me. Then in 2010, uh, they impounded a Japanese ship or a ship bound for Japan uh, because they got into a tiff. And what you saw thereafter was that the proportion of rare earths mined by China on a global scale started to dip immediately. And that's what, why resiliency. These rare earths are very important, just like the personal equipment that we need for our protection or the pharmaceutical uh, ingredients, the chemicals that are seemingly all manufactured in China because it made sense for efficiency, for low costs. We're exiting that era. We're entering one of resiliency. And if we need to pay more, then that'll be fine. That'll be something that the society will accept especially those societies that have large pools of unemployed with low labor force participation. Some thinking the Mediterranean, the United Kingdom, the United States, countries with uh, trade deficits. These countries have a lot of demand, which is very important in a globalized, generalized trade war. And they have high levels of unemployment. You bring back that sort of production, employment, investment. Prices will rise, but so will wages. And even if it is inflationary, that's fine because we're, again, we're leaving the era of efficiency and we're heading towards one of resiliency. And if that's the cost that we have to pay, then that's, what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can see that for, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of good examples, right? I mean, I, um, rare earths literally go in every electronic thing (laughs) that you use every day. Um, And without them, you would not have iPhones that perform like they do. Uh, The batteries wouldn't work as well as they do. Um, And obviously uh, pharmaceuticals has been put starkly into the headlights in the last few months uh, in terms of a lot of the ingredients um, coming from, um, or ultimately coming from China, uh, whilst via India a lot too. I think so with stuff like that where, you know, Pharmaceutical products. Well, you know what? If you if you suddenly can't produce antibiotics, of course people are going to pay more money because they need them. Mm-hmm. Um, I I guess I guess my question is, but when an iPhone costs eighteen hundred dollars, not twelve hundred, and I'm not saying it would, uh, or, or just food is twice the cost because you're having to farm it locally. I'm just making up numbers, but like, I think there are people would tolerate some things being more expensive, but just not tolerate others, unless of course people. Unless there's a shift towards people not buying, in effect, not trying to buy things they can't afford, um, like the Saturday Night Live sketch from ages ago with Steve Martin, um, where it's like, yeah, it's basically this book, which is um, basically, don't buy things you can't afford, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and 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 literally for the last what 70 years we've basically been this society that just grows dead uh, and it was very different of course in the late 19th century um, and early 20th century when people were saving um, so I just I wonder if there's going to be a very different tolerances to uh, price movements um, you know if a, if a antibiotic costs two dollars as opposed to one but it saves your life I don't think people are going to care much about that um, but if a pound of ca- uh, carrots costs two dollars not one people are going to care
1: I agree, and but then it's not up to us, really. It's all up to the just the trend and the financing, and that financing is not there, and it hasn't been for over a decade. Uh, the United Nations uh, Trade, oh gosh, I forgot their name, but the United Nations Trade Association, they, they rep- it's the organization that reports foreign direct investment year after year. And when did foreign direct investment peak? and never returned back to those heights, 2008. And if you look at the, uh, the data on, on merchandise sales, it's the same thing. We've peaked and barely grown for the last 13 years. So it's just simply not happening. And more and more people are voting against it. And uh, it's a perfectly natural course of events. We reach a certain point where it doesn't make sense for enough people in society, and they start voting uh, against globalization. And we've seen it six times already. So this is nothing new and prices may rise, but so may employment. And countries that are in the best position are those countries that are, uh, have a lot of demand and those are the ones that have trade deficits now. They're the ones that can dictate terms to countries that have trade surpluses because those countries are reliant on their customers to keep buying their goods. Those are the countries that have economies that are too big for their own internal citizens. And those are the countries that are in biggest trouble. Um, so they'll suffer, and employment will come be pulled back into the countries that have the current account deficits. Uh, it's not going to be pleasant, it's not going to be easy. These deglobalizations are violent socially economically, financially, uh, but it's just the cycle. And uh, you know, it's it's best to prepare for our listeners, thinking ahead of this, uh, to prepare to be resilient.
0: Right. No, I agree with that. And um so I mean it looks like this deglobalization train has kind of left the station, right? So I mean one one thing I think we wanted to touch on was kind of you know inequality in the world and you know it's if you look at the, I never know if it's Guinea or Gini coefficient, but it's as mm. high as it's been. And the last time it was high was 1937, eight, nine, just before, um, obviously the war. And, um, like, it seems to me that whatever, I mean, by the way, it may not be some smart person comes up with the next system. Of course the next system may just happen, um, like mm-hmm. kind of organically. And that actually might be in the most powerful way. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, but it seems to me that it needs to be something that's going to, you know, when, you know, when people, you know, there's going to be a trillion there sooner enough, soon enough in the world. And it's kind of yet there are literally a billion people that don't have enough food to eat. Like this just, it feels me a new system has to try and solve, you know, th- these things. Um, and deglobalization doesn't seem to help that because again, if it's the export, so the exporting countries will, um, not benefit from it as much as those running the big deficits uh, that can dictate more. I, I could probably argue that that could make it worse. Um,
1: for those countries, the the forters That's the problem. That But right? if
0: you're making it worse for some countries and others, again, this is inequality, right? It's the kind of definition of it. Um, but I guess, you know, I get there's always winners and losers too. I mean, that's kind of... Um, we're not trying to homogenize the world either, so...
1: We were during globalization, and right. we wanted... <laughs> the human spirit, the, the fraternity of humankind to increase and improve during globalization. But we're humans, we're fallen, we're failed. And uh, you know what? We're not interested in those people anymore. Now it's about me, my people, my family. That's perfectly natural, that, that happens all the time. And so, yes, the exporting countries will suffer. But you know what, who's not gonna shed a tear? All the countries that, are, uh, that currently have high levels of unemployment. We've simply entered that cycle of human history again, and I highly recommend to whoever, anyone who hasn't read the, uh, the Fourth Turning to just turn to uh, Rudyard Kipling's, The Gods of the Copybook Headings. Short poem, and it's just the cycle of uh, human affairs. And we're not interested anymore what is happening in an emerging market. It's now gonna be about how we're doing. And we're and more and more people are coming to the fore like that. And they're gonna pe- put people who think like them in or near power. And whether they come into power or the establishment parties adopt those platforms, I don't know. But that's just the, the direction we're heading.
0: Okay, so let's like maybe we like, in the last section, maybe think about, I and mean, we've talked about lots of super cool things here, but like, how do you put this all together? And I mean, a lot of people here are thinking what, well, Yeah, you know, the question I get asked most often is, well, w- what, what kind of portfolio should I therefore have? Like what kind of asset allocations? And again, we don't need to go into like precise detail, but like, but broadly, like, how do you think all this is gonna affect the kind of the main asset classes? Um, and, um, you know, in, 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 say, the 2020s, it's probably pretty hard to forecast stuff, you know, further out than that. Um, I mean, are you kind of like, yeah, basically you should just be like owning, uh, you know, as much gold as possible and like just kind of praying or like, you know, I'm just wondering, how do you think about that kind of like, how, with, with all these cool thoughts, how do you kind of construct um, you know, a portfolio that um, that should fare well, kind of whatever happens?
1: Well, you know who I, I rely on and I know you do as well as uh, Keith McCullough and his team from Hedgeye. They're ah, right. great. Yes,
0: yes. I, I did not know that you were also a hedgeyer. So, yeah.
1: Absolutely. they are, I've been following them for years now, since 2016, and they have nailed each inflection. So if you're a trader, uh, they provide a great service. If you're trading, but I think we're talking more about kind of a broader, longer-term perspective. And for that, I love the ideas and the work of uh, Daniel Want, who's just south of you there across the street. He's in Australia, and he, he has kind of an all-weather portfolio idea where the future is unknown, really, and we can't be too certain, and we have to hold our, our beliefs Somewhat loosely, we have to come to you know, a good thorough understanding and approach things from multiple perspectives and try to get an idea, but we have to be flexible. And so that all-weather portfolio, can we be in all gold? No, no, because look at the stock market. It's going straight up. So you want to be exposed, well, you, I don't know, me, the way I like to do it is to be exposed broadly to stocks, cash. Bonds, gold, uh, alternative assets such as uh, a business or cryptocurrencies, because it's not quite. Sh- I'm not quite certain how things are going to develop. So I, I have my uh, my wealth, such as it is, spread out. So in a defensive posture, and then I'm learning and leaning on people such as Daniel Want and Keith McCullough to kind of. Offer advice when we may be approaching inflection points, and therefore, and then at that point, move a little bit more into one particular asset category. How about you? How are you doing it?
0: Yeah, so it's going to sound like we colluded. So very similar. Um, the way I see it is that um, you know I've I've got my kind of macro thesis, which you know is at the moment is one of probably remaining in a, in a deflationary environment. Um, I'm not, but having said that I could be wrong. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I've basically spread across all the asset classes you mentioned, but what I use, what I then do, but I do over allocate. So if, so in the last, so at the beginning of the year, I was way over to in effect bonds and rates. Right. Um, and then in since COVID I've been much, I've been over mm-hmm. to precious metals um but again but that might so that might be peaking at like say 30 percent of a portfolio not like 80 percent um and but i but people like Hedgeye have been absolutely fantastic at the inflection points but also i think really good at just w- w- so at any moment i have my kind of idea of what you know broad asset classes i want to be in and, and roughly what weightings but then what Hedgeye brings me is like the ability to then kind of get some alpha within those classes so um, you know, when's it a good time to sell some gold, buy some gold, um, you know, the, the whole point, you know, right now you might be, you know, long tech like XLK or QQQ and short the Russell, right? These types of trades, um, which again, Keith had that, I mean, it, not necessarily that specific trade, but if you understand the process that they run, you would get to that kind of conclusion. Um, and and that just gives like a bit of kind of extra spice to it and makes it, <clears throat> I think, you know, more opportunity to, um, to generate alpha, but I believe that you're going to get the re- most people are not patient enough and to get real returns, you've got to actually hold things generally for a decent period of time. I mean, there can be exceptions and things like Bitcoin. Um, and obviously like when interest rates went from, you know, one and a half percent to zero in like three days, like earlier this year, you know, that was, um, you know, nice trades to be in. Um, but, um, I, I, I'm always asking myself, what if I'm wrong? Um, you know, i got the dollar wrong in the last you know, i i was i i was just kind of sure it was going to in fact it, i just wasn't consistent in a view i thought it was going to go up um after you know like from april and but at the same time i kind of could see that commodity prices were going up and gold was going up and this didn't make sense this makes sense to be in a weak, weaker dollar environment but the correlations were kind of different to what, what they are now um so i think admitting when you're wrong um, and learning every time is super important. Um, and I also think depending on your situation, like, you know, I've been an entrepreneur, right. For most of my life. So I have a bunch of private stock. Well, how do you then think of putting that in a portfolio? It's private and illiquid, but it could be substantial value. So my point is, is like everyone's got such a different uh, you know, nuance, you know, no two people should have the same, uh, uh, no two people that kind of, you know, want to put time into this stuff should have the exactly the same approach. Um, so,
1: but you know, one thing that we can suggest that could apply broadly to our audience now is the idea to introduce resiliency into your portfolio, because as I claim, resiliency is going to be very valuable this decade, whereas in previous decades, it was efficiency. But so we right now, we're just talking about being broadly diversified and resilient in that way, by asset classes. But what about the idea of being resilient with where your money is stored? Is it all with the same custodian? Is it all in the same legal jurisdiction? Then are you really diversified if everything's with the same custodian, if it's all in the same currency, if it's all electronic, or if you have all your financial assets within the financial system? For example, I'm thinking of gold. You could have gold, physical gold. Would you put it into a bank vault? No, no, you want to put it into a private business storage, right? That's introducing an additional layer of resiliency and diversification. So that's something that our audience should also consider during this, what I think will be a very volatile decade.
0: Right. And I think uh, Diego Perilla has talked about that quite a lot. He calls it anti-fragile, but it's kind of similar. Uh-huh. Um, and, and also, I mean, if we are just in, I mean, basically, if the vol, i.e. volatility regime of the 2020s is just going to be a higher volatility than the, 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 the teens, whatever we call it, the 2010s, um, then a lot of people are not ready for that because they've never known it. Um, I and mean, if you're listening to this and you're, under 30 or 35, you've probably never invested in an environment where, you know, VIX went to crazy levels until March came. Um, And um, so, you know, I still am a big believer. Ultimately, I think the snowball, uh, you know, which is the kind of sort of official Buffett biography is a fascinating read. Um, You know, and his his quotes on just, you know, the most powerful force of nature is basically compounding interest. (laughs) Um, And, at the end of the day, you've—it's never ever worth trying to be the hero with your portfolio. And if you're if you're sweating at night due to a position, it's too big. You're taking too much risk. Like the the name of the game is to be in the game, um, and um, and slow and steady wins in the long run. Um, but of course, everyone on you know Twitter I- is a multi-trillionaire that's a genius, right? At every trade they do, except they're all lying. So I think that's, you know, just another thing people need to bear in mind, like be very wary of the, um, all the self-proclaimed gods out there. But wait a minute. So you just said
1: slow and steady wins the race. So are you saying one should always be invested in the market? Because I'm thinking of, uh, of an idea of, if you're, trying to hold back some of your uh, investment and you've got a cash and you've got, uh, and you're invested in resilient assets, then you can buy when things are quite low. So are you, what, what are you uh, implying there by slow and steady?
0: Right. So what I mean is that if, if, you, if you put 30% of your portfolio into a call option that expires in two weeks time, you're nuts. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. how sure you are mm-hmm. that you're right. Um, you're still nuts because you could be wrong. Um, and completely agree with what you just said. At the end of the day, slow and steady means like you ultimately compound capital and can therefore make a lot of money in the long run by not having big drawdowns. And therefore, to your point, if you're relatively diversified, you know my, my point is your portfolio should not go up, all up or all down on any day. It has actually happened recently, kind of weirdly where bonds went up Gold went up, stocks went up, or, or indeed went down all on the same day. Um, so that and so it happens down again. But if that's happening a lot to your portfolio, it's probably not as hedged as you think it is. Um, and at mm-hmm. the end of the day, but the thing is, is what you said is about buying when things are cheap. Absolutely. Like theoretically, that's just rebalancing, right? But how many people actually rebalance? And how many people, when the stock market has plunged 50%, actually can buy it? it gets very psychological. Um, you know, well, wait a minute, maybe it's going to go down even more. And so I think a lot of this has to just, and I think this is what Keith does really well at Hedgeye is just, um, take the emotion out of it, make it into a math equation and stick to it. Um, I mean, I've personally been able to buy bottoms of things. Okay. I'm much worse at knowing when to sell around the topping process. (laughs) Um, but you know, and some people are the opposite. Um, um but yeah i mean ultimately if you can compound a portfolio that's a decent size at 10 to 20 percent a year which is absolutely doable um then that that that's what you want what you don't want is to be up 50 percent one year and down 40 percent the next
1: absolutely i agree and i I second that opinion regarding uh keith and uh, being able to pull out uh, at the right moments or you don't always get it right, but it's just the general inflection areas he's able to identify. And if you're able to preserve capital, that's more than half the battle from what I've learned. But people shouldn't listen to me. I'm a terrible investor, but uh, Keith, Daniel, people like that, uh, Diego Parilla, excellent, excellent recommendations.
0: All right. Well, why don't we leave it at that? I think it's a good place to end. Any final kind of closing thoughts? or?
1: I just wanted to thank you had a great time if anyone's interested in learning more about the creation and destruction on a wholesale basis of money that's what jeff snyder and i discuss each week on our show it's called uh, making sense and you can find uh you can find our show on the internet you can find me on the internet on twitter at Neil kalinowski and i just have have a hopeful message uh for people that uh Time and human civilization does not progress linearly. I believe it's cyclical. And though it seems we're heading toward downward, yes. But we're going to rebound. It's going to improve. The decade ahead is going to be a difficult one. But thereafter, I believe uh, we're going to have some of the best years of our lives. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to keep listening to your show. And if, if you ever wanted to have me on, maybe we could do a show where we talk uh let's see what can we do halo civilization and how it applies to uh investments and uh, there will be three listeners it'll be you me uh, mother and but that's okay we'll have a great time
0: no that sounds cool and and by the way just to reiterate like the, the making sense series and the whole euro dollar university thing that uh, emil and jeff are doing is it's absolute must listen to stuff um, and because it, the whole point, it's like, um, it's similar to how someone like Steve Amida does stuff in the sense that they're going through real data, actually, you know, trying to get you to understand what's going on. It's not trying to tell you what to do. And um, and you may agree or disagree with, you know, some of the uh, insights. Um, but I, I deliberately didn't go into that today because, you know, I think, you know, there's tons of great content. Um, that you guys have done so i'd massively recommend that series and it's on podcast as well so it's like super easy um for anyone to uh
1: that's right that's right and the podcasts have a special bonus so we are on a youtube show but the podcasts have a special bonus an intro where i put some music some jokes i dance at my top hat. i've got a cane and i'm trying to make it funny for a couple of two three minutes and uh so far the podcast hosts have not pulled the show off the air. So it's not the worst thing that I've ever done. But Emil, the best, thing, bad.
0: But Emil the best thing is the, it's, it's always the beginning of each YouTube where you, you come up with some hilarious kind of like, um, I don't know even what to call it, kind of like concept or skit or kind of thing involving Jeff. And he's kind of squirming and <laughs> I always <laughs> love that. It makes me it's, laugh. It's <laughs> very
1: dry. It's a dismal sense, but... I'm trying to make it less dismal. And uh, it's grossly unsuccessful, uh, but it's slightly more successful than what you get on CNBC.
0: All righty. Let's leave it at that. Emil, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Dr. Dark.